0: No one really wants to admit to themselves that they're scared unless there are other people around them admitting it too. The, the reality is being scared actually is useful because it helps you to sort of know when, when something feels too chancy. And, and one of the hardest things to do is to turn back. And that was something I, I have learned slowly, maybe too slowly, to do.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Abby Wright.
2: I'm Lisa Cohen.
1: We're coming to you from the Journalism School of Columbia, home of the Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Awards and many other prestigious journalism prizes, including, of course, the Pulitzers. Welcome to our first episode of On Assignment. Every two weeks, hopefully, we'll be bringing you a conversation we've had with some of the remarkable journalists who passed by Columbia to talk candidly about their reporting with students while on assignment. Folks who stopped by the school dig into some of the most challenging and groundbreaking stories of the day, stories we wanted to share with you.
2: So for our pilot episode, we're excited to go on assignment with a truly extraordinary foreign correspondent. It's New York Times Paris bureau chief, Alyssa J. Rubin. She was here in November because she won our John Chancellor Award, which is a lifetime achievement award for journalistic excellence. And then she came the next day and she shared some of her experiences and her thoughts with our students. Which was incredible. If you read international news in The New York Times, chances are you've seen her
1: byline from places like Iraq, Afghanistan and France.
2: So she reports a lot about women and and women in Afghanistan. And her most recent work, she published a piece on a very brutal crime, the murder of a woman named Farkunda. And uh, it really looked at the whole justice system in Afghanistan, which is a place that she's been reporting in since soon after 9-11.
1: For this episode, we invited Jill Abramson, former executive editor of The New York Times, to interview Alyssa, her longtime friend and colleague. It was fun to see. We're so used to hearing Jill talk about editing, managing the paper, managing newsrooms, etc. And to see her in journalism mode was really interesting and enlightening. She was able to push Alyssa in directions that she probably wouldn't have wanted to go to, but she had to because Jill was asking her. And we all benefited from that conversation, learning more about her incredible
2: career. You can actually read some of her stories by checking out the links on our website, onassignmentpodcast.org.
1: Now let's go to Alyssa J. Rubin in a rare public conversation with Jill Abramson from November 2015.
3: So you land in Paris at the airport uh, thinking, I'm sure, on the way home you were returning from a reporting trip to Afghanistan, uh, that you were, you know, coming home and you're going to put your suitcase down and flop on the couch or whatever, and you find out this devastating attack has happened. Uh, can you just walk us through, like what, what did Alyssa Rubin do next?
0: Well, I, uh, I got a message on my cell phone when I turned it on and from a, from a colleague of mine, saying that there had been massive uh, a massive terror attack in Paris and that there were hundreds dead and it, at first I actually thought well this cannot be true <laughs> it, it it just seemed it seemed like the wrong place for that to happen all I could think was that I had to get to work and it was impossible to do so because there were thousands of people and it seemed in line and I mean, then there were even Um, sort of scraps and fights breaking out in the line to get through immigration um, between people who thought that someone had gone in front of them and it took three hours to actually get through immigration because they were checking everyone so thoroughly so during that time I just kept texting different people at that point there was very little information still you have to remember it happened at night there were several simultaneous events which is confusing anywhere but particularly in a city where people you know refer to a neighborhood and aren't necessarily all that precise they're used to having an address that they look up on their iphone but if you just say well it's near the corner of la Republique," no one is necessarily going to know which corner um and we were still sorting it out and then i went into the office and everybody was there everybody went to work and was really trying to just get the barest of facts correct. It wasn't clear uh, whether it was the same people. I mean, now we know there were several teams of terrorists, but that information actually took days, several days, to kind of emerge fully. And we didn't really have a sense of whether it was over because there were a lot of indications that some of the people had gotten away. So it was it was very much a, a very basic kind of police reporting job of trying to figure out what happened when and where and get a sequence of events that we could corroborate with enough sources that you could actually post it on the web and, and then ultimately put it in print. It's like, you know, the post 9-11
3: world has grabbed hold of Alyssa Rubin and won't let her go, I feel. Uh, what what do you think is, what is this a new
0: phase of the, the post 9-11 world? Uh, My instinct is always to look backwards first, which is maybe not very journalistic, but it, it helps to think for me to think through what the precedents are and when we can actually say something is unprecedented. And so that was. In the New, I, New York Times, as I remember, Al Siegel always edited out that word. Right. Well, uh, unprecedented. It's a, it's a dangerous and word. <laughs> yeah. And one of the first things I try to do, and I, I, I did it sort of instinctively that day, was to try to find someone who could walk me through what what were the similar events that we've seen in Europe and you know sort of more worldwide and it was it was quite interesting to be reminded that while what happened at the Bataclan this concert hall where all of these terrorists had shot people at point-blank range we didn't really think about the fact that this has happened before and i was really lucky to stumble on someone who was able to list at least four or five times it's happened before and that was kind of a reminder of of all the tools that terrorists have in their sort of in their toolbox to use and that in a sense we're now dealing with a generation of terrorists that has quite a lot of experience at wreaking havoc and immobilizing societies you know without having to do anything new you just have to take it to a new place so I don't know that this is really so different it does seem that we're we now have a lot of people coming back from training and we're also seeing a very deeply discontent um Muslim population that is European that even if they are not actively becoming terrorists, are willing to host them in their midst. And it doesn't take very many people to do that. And so I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind that to some extent this is a European problem and to some extent it's a Middle Eastern problem and they're kind of coming together here.
3: As they are with the refugee crisis. Could, could you tell us why you were in Afghanistan and a little bit about the you know great project you've been doing focusing on women and their
0: status or lack therein I've been looking for ways for, for quite a while to evaluate what the u.s legacy is going to be in Afghanistan and uh, you saw all these women in burkas they couldn 't go out there were terrible stories of of women shot in soccer stadiums for alleged crimes that they almost uniformly had not committed. It seemed like something at first almost easy. aha, uh-huh, you give them their freedom, they can do once again you know walk on the street, go to school um, but the 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 difficult reality is that it's it 's none of those things but Americans have spent an enormous amount of money trying to make it better, and has any of that really had any effect? So I started to try to find ways to get at that question. One is um, women police. We put a lot of money into getting women into the armed forces in Afghanistan, and that was probably... Not a very good idea, though it was done, you know, best intentions, but not very well informed. And the women have ended up being uh, harassed, some of them raped, um, some of them killed, for having the audacity to go out and work in such a public way. They immediately are seen as prostitutes when they do it. The U.S. encouraged women to join the workplace and to join a particular job only only to really set them up to become to become victims again.
3: Can you yeah. share with us a little bit about the main character in the women police story that you did? And can you kind of walk us through how you
0: won her confidence? Actually, there were three characters. And sort of, one was a very ordinary woman. I think she was a second lieutenant. Um, and she... She was widowed. She was supporting her brother's family. Her brother was a heroin addict, and she lived in a kind of empty construction site with a small building that was made out of stone and, and mud, and there were two children living with her there. It was absolutely squalid. She really could barely piece together a life on the two hundred and fifty dollars a month that she earned. It, it was an incredibly restricted existence and she was, of course, constantly seen as, as a prostitute within the police corps that she worked on, so she was one example, but she sort of managed to get through. Then there was a second woman who had not been trained by the Americans, but by the communists, and she did quite well. She was the female warden of the prison and she was quite an organized person who had actually managed to rise in the ranks. And then the third person was a woman who went into the police because she had, I believe, six children. She was 27, 28 years old. And her husband was much older. It was a forced marriage. um, And he was ill and couldn't work. And so she felt she had no choice but to go to work. And she came from a very heavily Taliban area of, on the near the Pakistani border. And she went to work in the nearest large city, which is Jalalabad. It's uh, eastern Afghanistan. It's, the, it's this is the area where you know Osama bin Laden was in Tora Bora. It's extremely rugged, and very very few women in the police. So you're immediately sort of targeted by other police. But the fact is she was also targeted by someone who knew her, probably a cousin, and she was shot and killed in front of her children one day when she was at home. Her killers came up on a motorcycle, they were masked, and they took out their AKs, which they were carrying, and, and lifted up her burqa with their, the oh, tip of God. the AK to see her face and then shot her. I just happened to meet her before this happened and at a seminar she had gone to a seminar to learn how to be a more professional policewoman. Um, which given the circumstances it's you know kind of hard to know whether these seminars are worth anything they're you know the US spends lots of money paying different Afghan organizations to give them of course they had someone standing up at a kind of a whiteboard explaining things and writing things out, but of course she, she couldn't read, nor could hardly anyone else in the room. And she was so poor that after I was, my the photographer I was with and the translator were given lunch at this place where they were holding the seminar, and she looked at our lunch, because she'd come in afterwards and she said, do you mind if I take what she didn't eat? Mm-hmm. And she took all of our lunches and bundled them up. and. And, and left with them for her children, because there just wasn't enough to take care of however many children. I, I can't even remember the six or seven that she had and her ill husband. And so that that sort of is an example of why it's so difficult to actually get women to want to work in, in this kind of environment. Um, I think there were, at the time, 15 police women police in the entire province and something like a Thousand male police so they're incredibly vulnerable
3: while you were doing this Reporting for the series on women you went back to Afghanistan and found you know that Kunduz was falling to the Taliban. As a foreign correspondent, you have to kind of flip on a dime, essentially. And how do you do that? How do you turn on the dime? Well, you, you
0: certainly have to um, tell yourself that your plans don't matter. It, it's the new. the news is the, is always the plan. But it was actually, it's also a thrill to cover news. It's just, and this was a very, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm one of those skeptics about Afghanistan who I've expected provincial capitals to fall for the last couple of years. So I thought, aha, finally one has actually fallen. This is just exactly what But those of us who have watched sort of the US withdrawal um, has, have expected because they don't have the means to hold the whole country. And they're without a lot of, of you know, basically the army was trained to work Um, when they had the backup of airstrikes. And so when you don't have U.S. airstrikes, it falls apart.
1: We're taking a short break to let you know about some of the upcoming events here at Columbia Journalism School. To see one of these conversations live, check out our calendar on the website on assignmentpodcast.org.
2: This week, Friday, March 4th, we're gonna be screening the Wolf Pack. It's a long-awaited event here at the J-School. Everybody's been looking forward to it for months, actually.
1: Back to Alyssa Rubin and Jill Abramson on assignment. In our introductions, there was
3: mention of uh, the helicopter crash that you were involved in covering the plight of the Yazidis on that mountain uh, area. and. You know, I know it may be painful, but could you
0: share a little bit of what happened? Well, I it was it was very it was actually one of the most exciting stories I've ever um, had the privilege to cover because we'd gotten up to the Syrian border in northern Iraq, and there's a river that sort of divides Iraq and Syria, and the Yazidis had all been had uh, been pushed. Either had been pushed directly uh, uh, into into uh, Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, or had been pushed up into Mount Sinjar, which is a really a very very large, very long mountain. I think it, it runs for something like 60 miles or more, and it's it's not it's not precipitous. It's like a very very high plateau, and so they began to come down and to cross back into Iraqi Kurdistan, and and you would stand right on the edge of the bridge, and thousands of people were coming across. I, you know, it was as if there were, and there was no border control at all. The border was completely erased, and that was a fascinating moment. And so, if you're standing there, and you're watching all these people come across towards you, and you're hearing their stories of what it was like on the mountain, and their fears, and many of them had lost members of their family there, you know, there were, children who'd been separated from parents it was extraordinary and you want i was very curious okay so what's it like up on mount sinjar and i, I wasn't going to go up there on my own but um there were iraqi helicopters. i know you you would have climbed up that mountain alone <laughs> well, maybe if i'd known the way well. <laughs> Um, But there were helicopters going up, and and to be terribly honest, while I wanted to go up right away, the reality was you had to have a kind of a connection to someone who would get you on one of the helicopters because the pilots were taking food up. They weren't that eager to take reporters. Reporters weren't a priority. And if they were going to take reporters, they certainly didn't want to take print reporters. They wanted to take people with television cameras. So I went through this. Um, being the photographer I was with gave me one of his cameras to follow, to, to carry so that we could say that I was also taking pictures which if you ever saw a photograph I took is just an inconceivable idea since I can't even take like tourist pictures but anyway, so I, we got in this sort of line to try to persuade the pilots to take us and there other people had gone ahead of me and so it seemed at the time like if anything I was late to the story because other people had already gone up and I waited all day for that privilege and didn't expect that there would be anything untoward that would happen but what I think happened is that when we got up to Mount Sinjar there was a huge rush of refugees trying to get on the helicopter to get out many were were really quite ill, their feet were, I mean, there were a couple of, of old women who's, who had lost their shoes and their feet were all battered, I mean they'd been walking for miles. And they tried to put too many of these very sort of ill people onto the helicopter and it was I think too heavy, I mean there were about 35 people on it. This was just a, a was an old Russian helicopter. And it uh, had no seats, no seat belts. Um, I mean, I rode up sitting on a pile of bread and bananas, and there was nothing, you know, there, everybody was just piled in like, you know, on a subway train at rush hour. And so the pilot had difficulty lifting off and finally was able to sort of lift off, I think, on the edge of a, not exactly a cliff, but there was a drop off on the mountain and hit a rock or hit something i felt it hit something and then it began to sort of go back and forth and i thought oh this is not good but luckily we're not too high <laughs> and that that was actually true if we'd been just a little further up i don't think many of us would have survived and as it was i think four people died but it just it just began to roll and it and it uh it hit the ground and I was knocked out. So was next you few were, minutes, yeah.
3: yeah you, you were very badly hurt
0: as it turned
3: out. Uh,
0: I thought when I came to that I was going to be able to walk away, but I was not able to walk away. And then what happened? Well, then uh, usually it's really a bad idea to be too near a photographer because they are always in the most dangerous place, because they're trying to get the best picture. Um, but in this case, the two photographers on the helicopter were fine, or not fine, but they, they had some neck injuries, some stress injuries, from. but they were holding on to the struts of the helicopter, and so they actually were in a more stable position than someone like me who was just sort of, Sort of wedged in among people, and was I was thrown, and he was able to help along with a Kurdish peshmerga um, to pull me out because my my arms were and wrists were were completely shattered. I didn't really understand. I thought I was going to be able to, you know, <laughs> lift myself out, but they were I, I couldn't do anything with them. They were like raggedy and, um wrists, and so I I was pulled out and think I was just laid out on the ground until a helicopter finally came and lifted us off the mountain.
3: When I came and visited the, the, the Kabul Bureau in 2012, I think, I was really struck by how much of your time, your personal time as the Bureau Chief, was taken up with worries about security on you know a daily more than daily basis and how do you keep your colleagues safe?
0: Well I think it's something that that is more and more part of the job of people who are in in war zones but I think the what we just saw in Paris suggests that um, we have to broaden our idea of what what a war zone or a conflict area might be like so what what should one be prepared for any of us who've been either bureau chiefs or correspondents in in war zones now spends a huge amount of time on security the reality is you're not going to be able to tell the story or to write the story or 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 send it back if something's happened to you so it's really important to stay alive and to not be injured and how do you do that um, in a place and how do you also get the story in a place where there are lots of of areas that are no-go and it requires a lot of creativity we now spend an enormous amount of time planning every single trip and even sometimes trips like trips within Kabul if you or within Baghdad? Are you going to a neighborhood that's a bad neighborhood? Are you going to one where there's known to be uh, kidnapping, terrorist activities, sticky bombs. You know, you do reporting that is maybe completely unrelated initially to your story, but just on, you know, what is happening in the place you're trying to go to. You talk to people there, your, your fixers and translators talk to people there, and you try to get as real-time a sense as possible of what you need to be prepared for before you actually plan a trip.
3: There has to be like a careful almost balancing of how urgent the news value of a story is versus
0: the risk of of being out. Well, I think there are also really more and more we have to think about how do you get that story without going there and how can you make it as authentic as being there and having huge network of stringers who are local who can give you the information and you can write it. And so they have to be reliable, which is not always easy, and they have to be um, reachable. And they also um, have to be able to, to notice the things you need them to notice. You know, you have always been so
3: curious. I remember, you know, when you worked for the Wichita paper and you were i I had coffee with you and you were actually buzzing with excitement over the farm bill (laughs) Uh, and but i think that what drew you to you know go and 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 work there was you know this curiosity about the rest of the country and what it would be like and in some ways i think of wichita as your first foreign posting uh,
0: Oh, it was certainly my first. Well, we grew up state. on the Upper yeah. West Side. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Well, I I wish it were that um, thought thoughtful. What really happened was I applied to forty five newspapers, and um, many of them in the South because I thought, well, people write better in the South. They talk better in the South. They write better <laughs> literature in the South. I want to go to the South. So every tiny paper, I, I applied to. And I had never worked for my college paper. Nobody wanted to hire me. And finally, I managed to get an interview at the newspaper in the South, at, which was the at the, uh, the North Carolina, the Charlotte Observer in North Carolina. And the person who interviewed me looked at me and he said, you know, we just wouldn't hire you even if we- <laughs> Just they, on site. Just almost <laughs> on site. Well, they, they let me come down and um, I paid my way, of course. And they said, you know, we just would never, would never hire you because you have no experience and you know, we, we don't see any sign, <laughs> any particular <laughs> talent. But, um, but there's been, and this was quite horrible, but there's been a big union fight in Wichita and they've just lost a lot of people. So you might consider trying out there. <laughs> and so I and sent off did. my, and I did. And, um, and so I got a job um, on what was then a staple of Knight Ritter newspapers, it was called Neighbors. And it was like a little insert twice a week and you covered some aspect of a particular neighborhood like sanitation or school boards or whatever. And so I did that for a little while and then I did very happily move on to, to covering Wheat which I really loved. <laughs> because wheat is actually something that everyone in Kansas has something to say about. So it turned out to be a really uh, a really great way to get to know a place that was completely strange to me. I had I mean, you could drive forever. And there were no traffic lights. And you could I'd never been to a mall. And I had never, <laughs> I'd really never eaten fast food. And as a result, I actually started a, a kind of a column for the business section on Wichita as a test market and the test fast food that they would try to sort of get people to react to. And they, I mean, they had whole labs. You could go in and basically eat all day various test items for Pizza Hut or Taco Bell. Anyway, it was, it was. (laughs) It was very strange for me. It felt much more foreign than Europe would have. probably great experience,
3: I, you know, would you, I, I always yeah, yeah. suggested to, you know, s- students and others who had a passion for journalism to really go somewhere that seemed very different or foreign to them to be around people
0: who are completely different than you are. You don't you know, there's a lot of very, very valuable reporting that's very close to home, and you don't have to go halfway around right. the world to find a very compelling story. That, that's and, so true. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we see it all the time here in New York, but it, it's certainly true in Kansas, too, which people mm-hmm. might think of as a as a sort of
3: um, right. predictable
0: um, landscape, but in yeah. fact, of course, if you're there, it's a very varied one, and there, you know, it was it was the, the sort of period after the farm crisis in, in the late 80s. And it was a very, very sad place because towns were closing, schools were closing, banks had closed. And that's very much um, a story of the end of an era in America. That's the something. The idea that
3: stories are sometimes hiding in plain sight, I think, is important. And I actually focused one of my Harvard classes uh, on that kind of story, which uh,
0: you, you are very adept at doing. Well, usually if you just listen to people, they tell you the stories <laughs> because you don't always see them. And I mean, I, I certainly don't see them. I rely on, on, on everyone I know that you know they base people basically generously give you stories every day and or you somebody asks you a question and you realize you don't know the answer and then you think well maybe that's actually a story and that's that certainly happens
3: plenty the kinds of reporting assignments that you've taken on over your career do not neatly fit with you know a very full family, personal life. You've had to be away from your wonderful husband for, you know, months and months at a time. That had to be difficult. You know, what are your thoughts about, you know, especially balancing conflict and war correspondence with with life? And yes, I would ask a man that same question
0: well i don't i I don't think it's ever easy to um to do your work kind of wholeheartedly and do anything else at the same time i mean I, there are a few very lucky people who manage it, but it's very difficult but i I think if you if you want to particularly if it means being in two different places it's it's always going to be a, a very difficult trade-off and you're, you do lose something, but you can, if you make an effort, pl- probably plan it. And I think some some people are doing that more, but it is, if you look across foreign correspondence, um, I, I wouldn't say they're models of uh, of happy home lives. and that doesn't mean that you can't do it but it means that you have to put a lot of work into into making it work and and a lot of time into um, disciplining yourself to be there uh, a certain amount and i I would say i I haven't done a particularly good job. you have a
3: hard time tearing yourself away from work that that was true during the baby days at american lawyer though i i can remember um Alyssa, I think you actually slept in the office once. You were Possible. working so late. Possible. I heard you use a word for the first time at last night's award ceremony. You were discussing being scared. The word scared, I just never associate with you. But you know, we were also chatting about how you first became post 9-11 war correspondent in Baghdad and how initially you were very reluctant reluctant and in fact quite scared to go there
0: well I no one I think really wants to admit to themselves that they're scared unless there are other people around them admitting it too but I the the reality is being scared actually is useful because it helps you to to sort of know when when something feels too chancy and and one of the hardest things to do is to turn back and you have to know when to do that and that was something i i i have learned slowly maybe too slowly to do but um when i was in i i, w- I started out in jordan not in in iraq i was kind of our I was sort of the supply person for the Los Angeles Times making sure that during the bombing um, they had enough food and everything so we sent it you know we knew when the more or less when the US bombing was going to start but then when Baghdad fell I was I was very ambivalent I didn't really I didn't feel confident about going to Iraq I didn't know what it was like it seemed like a very you know, completely terra incognita, and so I thought, well, maybe I won't go, and then I was very curious, because I began to see all these pictures of, you know, the crowd finally coming out on the street. I mean, this all took place in a 24-hour period, and I decided, okay, I'm just going to go for a week, and I can always leave. I'll just say I have to go home, and I went, and I, of course, it. I ended up staying seven weeks, and then... And then ultimately like six years, years. but so, but it was sort of curiosity trumping fear and I, I do think for me curiosity trumps fear a lot of the time and that's good and bad <laughs> um, to be honest because sometimes you you think oh if mm-hmm. I could just get one more quote that'll that'll be enough I don't think there's any magical answers and I th- and I don't think there's any constant one you might decide you know I'm going to tell the editors I couldn't get back. <laughs> the car broke. We had to stay. And this one is worth it.
3: Thank you, everybody.
2: Thank you to Alyssa Rubin and Jill Abramson. To read some of Alyssa's stories, go to our website onassignmentpodcast.org.
1: Okay, Lisa, before we go,
2: as part of this gig,
1: running prizes at the journalism school, we see a lot of films, probably more than the average person. Um, We also see them as entries for the DuPonts, Mm -hmm. and we see them in this building at Film Fridays. So typically, on an average morning, we have something that one of us has seen that we're parsing the day after. And I do have to recommend um, a film I just watched over the weekend, Jim, The James Foley Story on HBO which was a very powerful personal account of the recently deceased uh, freelance journalist James Foley, told from his family members, really a personal story. He's incredibly compelling, of course. Everyone knows who he is. His murder was one of the most public things in recent memory. Um, But I thought it did a really good job of talking about the news business and the work of the foreign correspondent and how it has evolved over the last decade following him to the reporting he did in Benghazi and his experiences there, um, how he was naturally drawn to international coverage, to conflict coverage, but also just how the business of doing that kind of reporting has changed so much and how it has left so many vulnerable and really the news gap that we're all experiencing as as readers and viewers here in the U.S. I do recommend it strongly. It's it's
2: a It's a tough story, but it's a really important one. Is it one of these films where you just a bunch of people just waxing on about a person who by all accounts is you know a real wonderful person but
1: i mean i certainly walked away thinking he had led an extraordinary life but i it wasn't like oh he was perfect he was this saint like figure even though he was obviously did a lot of things out of the goodness of his heart you know an element of naivete and sort of living in the moment and but also how fast that story changed in Syria, you know, and his experience in Benghazi sort of shaped his worldview when he went into Syria and, and things had changed very quickly.
2: So he was overtaken and his perception of what was happening there was wrong. Exactly. Exactly. It sounds like a great way to tell this issue, to talk about this issue. It's such an important one. On our next episode, we'll go on assignment with Alex Gibney, the award-winning filmmaker who made the documentary Going Clear – we had him here last year to watch the film and talk about it afterwards, and then he went on to win a DuPont Award this year. It's such a brave act uh, to take on Scientology, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say.
1: Yeah, from the award-winning and prolific Alex <laughs> Gibney. <laughs> yeah, right. We would have a
2: page with his links on it, but we'd never finish it. So. Okay, that's it for this episode. On Assignment is produced by Asta Chaturvedi. Thanks to our funders, Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, to Columbia, and our amazing DuPont fellows, Dan Litke, Erica Glass, and Laura Brickman. Our music is by Dylan
1: Nowick. What's the last great story that you watched or heard? Let us know what you think on Twitter, at OnAssignmentPod. Or find us individually at Lisa R. Cohen or at AbbyWrightNY. That's
2: A-B-I. Until next time, everybody.